We're in a series, Difficult Questions. And the difficult question I was submitted early on in this, I probably got, I don't know, five or six of this question all phrased in a different kind of way. It was, in general, why were we born to suffer loss? Why do we suffer was the question. We have a lot of loss in life. We lose careers. We lose our health. We lose relationships. We lose certainty. We lose stability. We lose happiness. We lose loved ones. And eventually, we lose our own lives. And so tonight, we're talking about the problem of suffering, the problem of loss and pain all synonymous with each other. And I'm talking about real suffering and real loss, not this suffering I think we're having tonight because they're playing loud music and we don't have any parking spots next door. This week I spent five hours at the tax collector's office with my middle daughter. It felt like suffering. I don't know if you've ever sit in the tax collector's office for five hours. It's a long time. But I needed some perspective. I was in a building with air condition, praise God. I had my phone with me, and I could watch every movie under the the sun on that and and read books and have all the information and knowledge out there. My kids are healthy. One was celebrating a milestone. So we need to keep our our suffering in perspective. That's not suffering. Tonight, the suffering that I want to talk to you about is the suffering that causes you to question your belief in God. Or the suffering that causes you to question his goodness that we just sang about. Or the suffering that causes you to ask, God, are you even paying attention? The Bible talks about this a lot. It's probably the thing I've preached on more than anything because we are a church called Refuge. And so I think we ought to acknowledge suffering and talk about how we deal with suffering. And so I had to think through, what text do I want to use to talk about suffering this week? And God just said 1 Peter chapter 1. It's actually the first book of the Bible I preached here at this church. First chapter is just so beautiful. The instruction Peter gives to the church that is going through persecution and suffering. And so I'll just start uh, chapter 1, verse 1, 1 Peter. It begins this way. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exile, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter, I don't know if you remember him or not from back in our, our time of Easter. Peter was the guy who, you know, right before the death of Christ, he denies Christ three times. And then Jesus comes back and he restores him. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? It's that Peter now who is trying to lead this new startup church, these new Christians that are baby Christians, new to their faith, and now they're experiencing suffering. And he knows they're going to experience more suffering Nero, he's the leader in Rome at the time. He's a total psychopath. He's Hitler on steroids. He's putting Christian women and children into the Colosseum to be torn apart by lions. That's suffering. He's impaling followers and putting them on spears and lighting them on fire to light up his decadent parties. That's the suffering that the Christians that Peter is writing to are experiencing, and it's only going to get worse. And so the question I thought of this week, did these Christians know what they were signing up for. Did they know that the Christian life was going to be this hard, that life was still going to be so unfair? And then I thought, well, did you know that? Did you know that you were going to suffer and how hard life was going to be? Have you been prepared for that? And let's just set, let's set Christianity and faith aside for a moment. Did elementary school prepare you for how hard life was going to be and how much suffering there was going to be? Did middle school prepare you? What about high school? What about college? Did they do any classes to prepare you for how difficult 
life can be. I know for me, as I thought about that, the closest I could come up with is to prepare me for how difficult life was, was sports, because most of the teams I was on, we lost a lot, (laughs) suffered a lot of defeats. And so I tasted defeat, but even in those defeats, at the end of the defeat, we got to go out and get pizza, and there was joy because I could eat all I want and not gain a pound. It's awesome. Life is hard. Life is unfair. And as we become adults, there's not always pizza at the end of the defeat. I know when I became a pastor five years ago, I was not prepared in a lot of ways, but one of those ways was the amount of suffering that I would become aware of as a pastor in the lives of my friends, the ups and downs of sobriety, people with PTSD, people who have lost loved ones, people who are sex traffic victims coming through these doors, friends that have families still in Cuba that are over there suffering right now, friends that are experiencing doubt, which is really mental suffering is what doubt is. And I quickly learned as a pastor in those early months that my shoulders are not big enough to help all those people through those suffering and help them carry those burdens. And so I think about Peter writing to this early church. How much more amplified was it for this for him as a leader? What is he going to tell a church that is going through terrible suffering? Well, here's what Peter writes, verse 3. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with praise. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. He says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter doesn't say to these struggling Christians, I've I've heard you've been struggling, now let me tell you how we're going to fix that. He doesn't say, here's how to fix it. He says, remember the cross? Remember what Christ did for you? And then he says, remember what's to come? You know what future is waiting for you. He points them back to the past and forward to the future. There are a lot of arguments that can be made against Christianity. Perhaps the best argument, and certainly the most common, is this. How could an all-powerful God stand by and watch as children are raped, entire people groups murdered? Either your God is not good, or he's not all-powerful because he can't be both. And either way, he's not a God I can believe in. It's a formidable argument against Christianity. It's a challenging argument to debate. But... Disbelief in God doesn't solve the problem of suffering. It's still there. In fact, without a God in the equation, there's no basis for us to even expect a better world than this. Two weeks ago, I preached on evolution a little bit and creation, and I said belief in the biological process and then belief in evolution as a worldview are two entirely different things. The evolutionary worldview, if there is no God and there's nothing but nature, then there is nothing more natural than suffering and loss. That's how evolution works. It's survival of the fittest. It's the strong eating the weak. You might feel like you're suffering because some neurons are firing, but there's no basis for you to object to your suffering because there is no basis for good 
or evil. John Paul Sartre, he's a uh, philosopher, he's an atheist, he wrote in the early um, 20th century, says the existentialist, on the contrary, finds it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist, for there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There can no longer be any good reason for anything since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. It is nowhere written that the good exists, that one must be honest or must not lie, since we are now upon the plane where there are only men. Dostoevsky once wrote, he says, if God did not exist, everything would be permitted. And that, for existentialism, is the starting point. Everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist, and man is in consequence deserted. For he cannot find anything to depend upon either within or outside himself. Our natural response to pain and suffering is to question our belief in God. And that's normal and that's natural. But I just want you to know as we start tonight, getting rid of God does not solve the problem of suffering. Peter begins his letter, if you look back, with words like inheritance, heaven, salvation. Those are all words pointing to the future. If we look at Paul's writing to churches that he planted, he uses very similar words. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, it says, But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. For when the trumpet sounds, when life ends, those who have died will be raised to live forever. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. He says, then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. He quotes scripture from the Old Testament. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. And then the famous, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's a lot of words there. But what Paul is saying is the resurrection is not compensation for the life you lost. It's the restoration. It's the transformation of life. Let me take that further. Revelations talks about a new heaven and a new earth. That means that our world that we see now, this earth, our bodies, those we've lost, the Bible says they all come back and it uses words like pure, unfading, imperishable, unspoiled. It's a beautiful thought, but it's more than that because Paul says death is swallowed up in victory. That doesn't mean that death and suffering just ends. Glad that's over with. Now we can move on to this new life over here. It means that all that bad stuff over here is swallowed up. It's taken up into the victory. It's like me when I consume that pizza now. I consume it, I get bigger. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's how it works. I consume it, and now it becomes a part of me. I quote this often, C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. He says, They say of some temporal suffering no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. I don't think there's any better statement of saying that swallowed up in victory means that our suffering will be a part of what actually makes heaven so glorious. Tim Keller, I was listening to a sermon of his this week, and he, he said an illustration like this. He said once he had a dream, and in that dream, his entire family had been murdered. And then he woke up from that dream and realized it was just a dream. And that feeling of relief that he had, knowing that it was just a bad dream, made the love he had for his family that much greater, knowing that they were now there with him. It was a greater sense and a greater depth of love. 
So experiencing losing them, mating the experience of having them infinitely more precious. And so as I thought about that this week, the Holocaust, that person you've lost, whatever suffering you're going through right now, the Bible says everything bad will come untrue and the resurrection will be that much greater for that suffering having happened. Verse 6, Peter writes, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds, or may have suffered grief in all kinds of trials. And so Peter has pointed us to the back, to the cross. He's pointed us to the future of glory. But he doesn't just leave us in the past and in the future. He acknowledges that the people he's writing to have present day suffering and trials. We read the New Testament, it has a very triumphant tone, and it should. I mean, God has finally shown up. All the promises of the Old Testament to the people of Israel have been fulfilled. And so the New Testament, generally as a whole, is, is triumphant. If we read, though, only the New Testament, then we get this sense that, okay, well, no matter how difficult things get in my life, I need to keep this happy, clappy attitude all the time. doesn't leave any room to express mourning and grief in our suffering. Yes, Jesus has come. Yes, heaven will be amazing, but life is still hard. Life is still unfair. There are times of suffering when it feels like God hasn't shown up. It feels like God has abandoned us. Maybe even it feels like God has lied to us. See, the New Testament didn't replace the Old Testament. We need both. We need the hope of the new, and we need the darkness, yes, of the old. When I think of darkness in the Old Testament, I always immediately go to the Psalms. A lot of the writers of the Psalms, something bad happened to them. Sometimes we know what's happened, a lot of times we don't. All we know is something bad has happened, and they don't hesitate in their songs to question God, to interrogate God, to call into question even His honesty. And we have to assume the writers of the Psalms are devout because their songs got published in the Bible. So they're probably devout believers. And yet, listen to Psalm 88. Here's one. I'm overwhelmed with troubles. I'm like the slain in the grave cut off from your care. He writes, you, God, have put me in the lowest pit, the darkest depths. I call to you, but you hide your face from me. You have taken all whom I love Darkness is my closest friend. No Satan is a scapegoat in that psalm, which is typically what we do. Bad stuff's happening, blame Satan. This psalm writer is blaming God for his suffering. Psalm 89, I won't read it all to you, but God promised David's dynasty would last and rule forever. It's what he promised, but it doesn't, at least so that the Israelites know until we see Jesus come and all of that. And so in Psalm 89, he just straight up calls God, says, you're unfaithful, God. I mean, God, you're a liar. Psalm 73, he goes on and on that God promised that if they were good, they would be blessed. That's kind of a theme in the Old Testament. But then he sees all the wicked prospering while the righteous endure long days of suffering. That's what he writes about. Imagine if our worship songs were a little bit more like these psalms. Unstoppable God. Well, that's a big fat lie impossible things. Yep, that's pretty much what they are. That's how we would sing. Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read it, a guy's major depression happening. Meaningless, meaningless. I work all day. I have nothing to show for it. All I have to look forward to in this life is death, and that was your design. Thank you, God. Job, 
suffering is too shallow of a word for what Job experiences. And his friends come along and they give him all the Bible cliches. And even by the end of the book of Job, God says those answers are not even any good. Philip Yancey, if you haven't read him, you should. Great author. He writes this. He says, when I wrote the book, Disappointment with God, great book, by the way, says the publishers quiz me about my, pro, my proposed title. People who frequent Christian bookstores are more used to a more positive spin. How about something like overcoming disappointment with God, they've said. No, I responded, I want to write to people in the midst of disappointment. Turns out the Bible has much to say to people in just that state. When we read the Bible, we need to have the New Testament, yes, but we also need to read the words of those ancient Israelites and allow those words to relieve us of the spiritual shame when we say, God, where are you? Galatians chapter 7 verse 19 says, nothing pleases God more than being fake. There is no Galatians chapter 7. That's not a real verse. Because God doesn't want us to be fake. Yet we come in here or we live life and we think we have to, we have to be fake. We're suffering. Thank you, sir. Smile. May I have another? God wants children. He doesn't want brown nosers. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a lady named Naomi. Naomi. I had an aunt named Naomi based on that name, and that's how we said it in Indiana. Naomi. Her name literally means pleasant. Oh, what a nice name, pleasant. But her life was anything but pleasant. She and her family are forced into exile. They have to leave the promised land. There her husband dies. Then her son dies. Then her other son dies. And when she finally returns to her homeland, she's widowed, she's childless. And so she laments. Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, she says, Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? That's not fake. That's blunt honesty. She thinks that God has ruined her life and she's not afraid to say it. But you see, the beauty of that is that suffering has a way of making us not be fake, of stripping off our masks. And that's a good thing because a relationship with God that doesn't have room for brutal honesty is not a relationship at all. People don't complain to a God that they don't believe in. And so if you've ever complained to God, or if you are right now, know this, our laments, our cries, our questions, our anger towards God aren't an illustration of a lack of faith. Instead, it's a beautiful confession of our faith. That we trust God enough in our suffering to ask him, God, where are you? And yet still call him Father. Verse 7, he says these, and he's talking about the trials and the sufferings and the losses. He says these things have come... So that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's a beautiful metaphor. It's why I wanted to sing the, the song we sang tonight. Suffering purifies our faith like fire purifies the impurities out of gold and then makes that gold even more precious. 
Suffering has the ability to turn us away from the illusions of self-sufficiency, I got this, or the illusions of invulnerability, and then open our hearts and then thus grow our faith like nothing else can. And Peter, this good Jewish boy, he knows scripture, he's likely pointing back to the story in Daniel chapter 3, may know the story, King Nebuchadnezzar, he builds a gold statue, right? He says, if you hear a flute or a horn or any other kind of musical instrument, everybody needs to immediately bow to the ground and worship that golden statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will be thrown into what? The fiery furnace. And these three Jewish lads, Shadrach, Meshach, there you go. You guys do know the story. Those guys refuse. Of course, the king is outraged, has the men brought before him, and he says this, or they say this to him. Um, sorry, Daniel chapter 3, verse 17. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. I bet there's some sarcasm in the your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods, little g, or worship the gold statue you have set up. So as the story goes, he heats the furnace up seven times hotter than it's ever been heated before, which I don't know what kind of insulation he's got going on there. It's like a big green egg. It's just, you know, he just lights it up. He heats it up. It's so hot, in fact, that the soldiers that take these three men into the furnace, they burn up putting these three guys into the furnace. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he's outside, he's watching this all go down. There's like a window for him to see everything. And he looks in and he sees not three men, but he sees four men. And they're walking around in the fire that's eight times hotter than normal, and they're unharmed. He's like, wow. Tells the man to come out. Only three of the guys come out of the fire. They come out, the fire hadn't touched them. Not a single hair, the Bible says, had been singed. They didn't even smell like smoke from being in the fire. It's a familiar story, and there's a lot we can draw out of that story, but for our purposes tonight, what I want to draw out is that fourth person there in the fire. Isaiah 43, one of the prophets in the Old Testament says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. This is God speaking. He says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. The promise isn't, if you belong to me, you won't go through trials and suffering. It's not even if, it's when. This is the promise, though. When you go through fiery trials, I'll be there with you. When you pass through deep waters, I'll be there with you. I won't let the fire consume you. I won't allow the water to sweep you away. And for us believers, that brings some comfort and hope. And for others, well, la-ti-da. When life sucks, thank goodness I got an imaginary friend I can't see that's supposedly there with me. That's so very helpful. And so Peter writes in verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so I admit, I'm an outsider to Christianity for a long time. And I know it takes a lot of faith to make that leap and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I can't make that decision for anybody. Everybody's got to make that decision for themselves. But the way I see it, it's either 
faith in the existentialist evolutionary worldview that we're just a bunch of random particles, there's no such thing as good or bad, which means there's really no basis for all the suffering that I go through in life, or the other alternative is then faith in Christ Jesus and the cross. Admittedly, looking to the cross, it doesn't give us all the answers that we want about the suffering in life. It doesn't propose to, but looking to the cross, it does tell us what suffering is not. We look at the cross, it means it can't be that God doesn't love us. It can't be that God doesn't care. It can't be that God is indifferent. Jesus, the God-man, came and voluntarily plunged himself into that furnace of suffering on the cross. And those temperatures were more than eight times a normal furnace. They are temperatures we cannot even fathom for the furnace of fire that Christ went through, showing just how far he would go to end evil and suffering without ending us. Jonathan Edwards, in his great sermon, and I referenced this a little bit at Easter, he's speaking of Christ there in the garden before he goes to the cross, and he's praying, and he's, he's sweating out blood drops, and he says this, Jonathan Edwards says, the thing that Christ's mind was so full of at that time was, without doubt, it was the dread which his feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer for us. If Christ went to that fiery furnace, which is the only furnace that can truly consume us, Why then would I ever doubt that he's walking with me through my little fires that come up every single day or those big fires that come along in life, even if I feel him personally or not? Peter writes this in verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, those Old Testament writers who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing to when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would come. And so what Peter is doing here, he's bridging kind of the Old Testament and New Testament gap and putting the two together. He says those Old Testament prophets, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and even those little little prophets, the minor prophets, Joel and Micah and Malachi, they knew something of the gospel, but you know the full gospel that's fulfilled. And so he writes in verse 12, because it was revealed to you, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that now have been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It's a real simple one. Why did Jesus go through the fires of hell? That furnace, that fire, he went through it for you. He went through it for me. And Peter ends then the section that we're looking at tonight. He says, even angels long to look into these things. That's how beautiful it is. That word long there is epithemia. It's a word usually we use when we're looking at the, the sex part of Scripture. It's the word for lust. Angels are smarter than you. I don't know if you realize this or not, but they are. They're, 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 greater be- they're smarter than you guys are. They've been around forever, so they've had a long time to figure things out. So the angels are smart. They've been around forever. And Peter says this. He says, the story, the gospel of God saving us through Christ for the angels, man, it, it never gets old to them. 
They obsess over it. They burn with passion. They lust for that story. And so the question is tonight to you, do you lust for the gospel? Do you obsess over what Christ did to save you from the ultimate suffering? Because when you have a deep burning passion for the gospel, I have a feeling you'll actually feel Christ there beside you as you go through your fires. So how do we get through the fires? We fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what Peter says, our living hope. We fix our eyes on the cross before us, the inheritance that's waiting. It's how we get through our fiery furnaces of life. But the question is, how did Jesus get through his fiery furnace, that infinite furnace of fire? Hebrews 12 says this, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Then he says this, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What is that joy? He already had everything. He had heaven. He had friendship with God. He had sonship of God and all the benefits that come with that. He had power. He had majesty. He had glory. What was the joy set before him to help him endure the cross? What was his living hope? Well, again, it's me. And it's you. As he said on the cross, the vision of a beautiful, unspoiled, unfading, perfect, restored, glorified version of you and me in his arms. That's the joy that was set before him. That's how he endured his fire. Take that in tonight. That you are what filled Jesus with joy and resolve as he went through his fire willingly knowingly, joyfully, as he allowed God to refine him into the resurrected gold Savior. So back to our question that we started with tonight, why were we born to suffer loss? We could kind of rephrase the question, why if God knew how terrible life was going to be that we were born and it's going to be unfair and there's this potential of terrible suffering and a lot of us are going to go to hell and, you know, there's death and there's loss. Why even create us human beings in the first place? And Karen and I have had this discussion a few times over the years. She's got a pretty good answer that's always sit well with me and I'll share that with you tonight. She says, well, why did we have kids? We knew the risk. We knew what this world was like. We knew they would experience suffering. We knew that life would be unfair. But as people, human beings created in the image of God, there was just something in us that longed for that relationship with children. I don't know what's in store for my children, but God knows what's in store for his. More than that, he knows that he can redeem their suffering and loss. And so I want to close with this. It's the most honest prayer ever prayed in the history of the world, certainly in Scripture. It's Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. Cursed twice in Scripture. Once It's in a Psalm 22. It's a lament Psalm. And the other place it occurs is Matthew chapter 27. It's really the only true lament that we find in Scripture. Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. Translated loosely, it's God, where are you? Or as you probably know it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the words of Jesus. It says the same thing that those psalm writers say, and God heard his son's cry. 
and God hears your cry. And so as we go through our trials, as we go through our suffering, may our faith be made stronger by our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that life is, in fact, unfair. That Jesus would have gotten what he deserved for a perfect life. He was a perfect son. He loved the unlovable. He healed the hurting. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was spit on. He was laughed at. He suffered through a fire then that we can't even begin to imagine so he could save us from the fire that could consume us. And so thank you, God, that life is not fair. Jesus did not get what he deserved, and I did not get what I deserve. Thank you for your abounding grace, your abounding love. Thank you for being with us in every fire, in every deep water. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is sometimes as we go through fires and trials and Jesus is with us, sometimes the Jesus that is with us is also that friend that Jesus places beside us and goes through those fires or that church that comes along a community of people that are hurting and suffering. And so next week where we're going to go with the question is, you know, we're called to go deeper and we're called to serve and we're called to love others. And so the difficult question is, well, how much is enough? How far do we have to go? How deep do we have to go? Is there a point when we're allowed to be apathetic? And so that's the question for next week. And so uh, if you're a misfit, come back because you're going to hear a sermon about misfits. If you um, uh, have friends who are misfits, this is a safe place to bring them to hear a message uh, with good news and with some, some learning going with that too. So hope you can be here next week. God bless. Love you all and hope to see you next week.